Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Violet here. This week we tackle the fascinating and complex relationship between science and religion in the company of the academic and writer Nicholas Spencer. Spencer has written extensively on evolution, religion and atheism. He is a visiting research fellow at Goldsmiths University of London and the director of the think tank Theos, which investigates the place of faith in society. We discuss his latest book, Magisteria, the Entangled Histories of Science and Religion, which was published last week, and he takes us to 1859, when Charles Darwin had just published The Origin of the Species, igniting a debate about evolution and humanity's place in the world. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and if you do, please rate and share us on your podcast platform. Hello, Nicola Spencer, and welcome to Travels Through Time. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Today we are going to be talking about the thorny and compelling relationship between science and religion. And before we get into the details of it, I wanted to ask about you. And um, can you tell us a bit about your background and, and what you do? Yes, I'm senior fellow for a think tank called Theos in London. I guess I'm a researcher by background, at least that was my, my first job. But I read... Uh, literature and history for my first degree and then I read religion and politics for my PhD. So I'm a bit of a jack of all trades I guess. I've got a kind of a, a, a wide range of ex, uh, interests but I wouldn't boast expertise in any of them. And this is your third book I believe. I've written a, a few others beforehand but um, this is the third or fourth of a kind of uh, with mainstream publishers if I put it that way. Right. It's really impressive in terms of the scale and the ambition. You start um, in the ancient world and then um, cover right up to the present day. Uh, And before we go back in history and and visit your year, I'd like to ask you about how you see the relationship between science and religion today. Where do you think the two um, things intersect? Or perhaps do they not really intersect anymore? Have they separated out totally? So I do think they intersect, and the best way to me answer that is to give you what the spectrum is, if you like. On, on, on one end of the spectrum, there's the view that you associate with the kind of the new atheist crowd, that somehow science and religion are both competing explanations for the same thing. Science does it better than religion. Religion is defunct. Um, I, I certainly don't hold that view. I know very few people who seriously do. At the other end of the spectrum, you get the view that's most commonly associated with the late American biologist Stephen Jay Gould, who argued that they were noma, non-overlapping magisteria. So they both had their own magisterium, their own area of interest, but they didn't overlap. Science was about facts, religion was about values. And I think that's a bit closer to the truth, but I don't think it's particularly accurate. I think... They are separate magisteria, but they do overlap. And in particular, they overlap around the question of the human, how we understand the human. And as it happens, and we may talk about this perhaps right right at the end, I think that question is going to become increasingly important in the 21st century. So they're not in competition, but they do overlap. Yeah. 
I liked that you pick out two areas where consistently throughout history, these two magisteria, as you call them, have kind of rubbed up against each other. And the first one was, uh, is authority. So who who's in charge, who has the right to make these pronouncements. And then the second one was um, the human and, and what is a human. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I feel like that's a really good way into your book. Mm. So let me give you an example. In the beginning of the 13th century, Aristotle makes an appearance in Europe. Um, Aristotelian teaching has been lost for the past thousand years or so, but through the translation, first through the Islamic Empire and then up through Spain, comes back into Europe. And intellectual Europe is dazzled by Aristotle um, and accepts it and embraces and, and, and thinks through the implications of Aristotelian thought. But there are some churchmen who get a bit embarrassed and nervous about this. So in 1277 in Paris, the Bishop of Paris issues an edict against Aristotle. But when you read the details of the edict, what you actually see is what's going on in Paris in 1277 is a classic academic dispute between the theology faculty and the philosophy faculty. And the philosophy faculty, now they've got Aristotle on their side, have decided that they're capable of adjudicating finally on all these issues about nature and reality and time and everything else. And the theology faculty say, well, hang on a second, you can't do this. And so what superficially appears to be a scientific discussion, because it's Aristotelian science that's often absorbed, actually becomes a question of who's got the right to say what it is with the world? The Galileo affair, I mean, we won't go there because it's a huge territory, but the Galileo affair is very much a similar kind of issue. Who's in charge? Who has the authority to adjudicate legitimately on the nature of reality? The other area is humanity. Who are we as people? What value do you assign to the human? What's our destiny? What kind of free will do we have? That kind of thing. And there have been lots and lots of different answers around that through history. But when the two come together in the 19th century, you have questions of authority and questions of the nature of the human. Then it gets really interesting. And one of the things that comes across um, and, I, and I believe this is one of your main reasons for writing the book, is you want to redress this, these misconceptions about these big moments when science and religion came up against each other. So can you talk about that? Yes, I do. The popular view is that science and religion have historically always been in some kind of antagonistic relationship. And that was a, a myth that was developed for various reasons towards the end of the 19th century. Now, in the last 50 years or so, scholarship has completely moved on. And there are very, very few scholars in the academy who would say that historically the relationship is between science and religion has been one of tension. Actually, it's been pretty harmonious and mutually supportive. But that view hasn't really filtered down into the public imagination. I did a radio series a few years ago to try and get this view across, this, this, this fresh and more accurate narrative. But I think it's fair to say we're still stuck in the myth of the conflict or the warfare between science and religion. So I want to address that, but without going to the other extreme and saying, oh, it's always been harmony in the garden. It hasn't. There have been points of tension. And where it's really interesting is where those points of tension emerge and why. Because, of course, what we have to remember is that most people in history who we would call scientists, in inverted commas, obviously, would have also believed in God and were quite often, I mean, in the Middle Ages, they were monks or, or priests. 
And that's really fascinating, isn't it? How that, and even Newton, you know, wrote more about theology than um, about, about mathematics. Can you talk a bit about that? So how inside one person, these two apparently conflicting ideologies can exist? Well, the best way of addressing that is by picking apart the idea that there is such a thing as science and there is such a thing as religion. They're modern terms, modern categories. They only really emerge into the form that we understand them by the mid-late 19th century. Before that, science, you do have science, but actually it's more usually called natural philosophy, or it's mathematics, or it's sometimes natural theology, or it's medicine, or it's alchemy, or even astrology. You have these various different disciplines. And religion, again, is a much more modern phenomenon, which is a kind of result of the Reformation and the way in which different doctrinal creeds hardened into bodies across Europe. They became kind of bodies of belief, religio, people bound together over a certain idea. And then when the Europeans went across the cult, went across the rest of the world they saw things that looked a bit like that so hinduism became a religion and buddhism became a religion and confucianism became a religion but actually before the reformation and across most of the rest of the world what we call religions were much broader moral cultural existential stances in reality and so the idea that they were separate identifiable things let alone conflictual identifiable things just didn't really occur to people before say the 18th century at the earliest and so if you ask Newton or Descartes let alone Copernicus or Thomas Freiburg or whoever like that you know why they were both scientific and religious the question literally wouldn't have made any sense to them. And also um, in previous especially you know the medieval period the, the idea that you didn't believe in God I mean that wasn't really even a concept, was it? I mean, everyone, but God was just part of the structure of everyday life. That's absolutely right. I, I One of my early books was on a history of atheism. And um, really, I mean, the word atheist or atheism is only coined in the European vernacular languages in the first half of the 16th century. Actually, as soon as it was coined, the Orthodox found atheists everywhere. There's this calculation that in Paris in the early 17th century, there were 50,000 atheists. Well, they weren't in the sense of we talk about atheists. Atheists was a much more um, social and political and moral stance than it was a statement about the belief in God. And and, and really the first person whom you can confidently say in European history or in post-classical European history was an atheist, definitively in the sense of not believing in God, was a Frenchman in the early 18th century called Jean, Jean Meslier, who was a Catholic priest <laughs> and whose manuscript, <laughs> his confession manuscript, was found under his bed after he died. Before then, there are people who, lots of people who were accused of atheism, but very few people who were. Atheists. And people who maybe had doubts about certain aspects of religious doctrine, which is oh, a yeah. different thing. Yeah, I mean, if you read church court reports, from um, late 16th century, there are lots of people who basically say, I don't believe this rubbish. Um, but not, it's, not, it's not a kind of a thought out view. It's just a sense of, look, I'm, I'm a farmer. I watch animals die. I watch people die. We're animals, we die. So that's a kind of atheistic view, but it's an inchoate feeling rather than an intellectualised one. Yeah. So 
as I mentioned earlier, your book is really um, universal in its scope in terms of time. And also um, you talk about Judaism and Islam as well as Christianity. So um, can you just talk us through how you structured it and, and, you know, how you found a path through this absolutely enormous, fascinating subject? Well, I, I've tried to bring sufficient structure and order to it without pretending that the whole thing is a very structured story. So it's in four parts. The first part is science and religion before science and religion. As I've said, these terms only begin to coalesce really at the beginning of the 17th century. So the first part tells a story in the classical world, Islamic world, medieval Judaism, medieval Christendom, and then Copernicus, where you have scientia, knowledge, and religio, and uh, how these two different entities kind of work together and occasionally work against one another in the ancient and medieval world. Second part narrows it down to where what we call modern science emerges. So that 17th and 18th century Western Europe. So that deals with Galileo, deals with Newton and Descartes and human people like that. The ninth, third part is the 19th century, which is where science and religion, as it were, pull apart from one another over these crucial ideas of authority and humanity. By 1900, science is an independent, autonomous entity with its own institutions and practices and professionalisation. Religion has now detached itself from it. But the two remain entangled in the way we've just talked about, in particular with regard to the human. And so the 20th century tells a story from kind of the Scopes monkey trial in the late in the 1920s, all the way through the moon landings and the cos Soviet cosmonauts to Silicon Valley today tells how science and religion, despite being distinct, remain entangled. You talk about new evidence that has appeared recently, which has sort of changed and perhaps given us a more nuanced view of some of these moments. And I know that we're going to talk about one in particular in a minute, but can you just tell us a little bit about that and what difference that's made to the general study of these this subject? Yeah, so obviously many of the texts that form the base of the history have been known about for a long time. And so it's very unusual to come across a completely fresh text. It occasionally happens. We'll talk about one, I know, later on. Um, there was a famous draft of a letter from Galileo in, I think it's 1615, when he's preparing for what becomes his first appearance for the Inquisition, which was lost and then rediscovered in the archives of the Royal Society about 10 years ago, having been filed under a different year. And that didn't completely change the picture, but it showed that Galileo had been a bit disingenuous about some of his claims uh, and, um, um, at the time. There is also, and there is a lot of work to be done here, emerging corpus of Islamic scientific um, material. The popular view is that Islamic science, I mean, did lead the world from about the 9th century to about the 12th, and then it declines after that. I talk a bit about this in the book, and that, that narrative holds, except for the fact that, as people point out, there are huge numbers of Islamic scientific manuscripts from the later medieval period that haven't been translated and analysed, and that's only likely to increase our knowledge of the Islamic world and increase our sense of its continued flourishing. So there is some work that still needs to be done, and that's even without going into the whole area of, of, of science and civilization in China, which I don't really touch upon in the book. So there is still emerging material, but I don't think it's going to radically change our view of the narrative as we have it. 
And you mentioned earlier that in the 1890s, this was when this sort of um, pitting of religion and science began in terms of their history. Can you just tell us a bit about that? Why was that? And who, who was it who was writing this? And with what to what end? What was the point? Well, it begins in the 1870s and... Uh, you, you can pin it to one particular man whom we will meet um, uh, shortly, I guess, a guy called John Draper, who wrote a book in 1876. He was born in um, the UK, but he emigrated to America in his 20s, I think. He became a chemist, he became an eminent chemist, first president, I think, of the American Chemical Association. But he also reckoned himself as a kind of intellectual historian. And he wrote a book in 1876 about the history of the conflicts between science and religion. What's happened in the 1870s, various things. This is the point of them. There is some genuine tension between the two. But it's also the point where the Catholic Church reasserts itself in quite an authoritarian way, just as other churches are liberalising. It's also a period of time when there's a lot of inward migration into America from Southern European countries. And the Protestant establishment there gets quite anxious about this. So there's quite a lot of anti-Catholicism in the air. Um, and Draper is, I mean, I don't think he's much of a believer, but he's hes the son of a Methodist minister. He's imbibed a kind of a non-conformist anxiety about Catholicism. And what he does is he reads the entirety of the history of science and religion through the lens of that particular moment, through the lens of a concern of an authoritarian church and the fear of Catholicism suppressing intellectual freedom, which has been a very long-standing Protestant fear. He picks up certain Protestant motifs about what happened in the trial of Galileo and what that symbolised for wider intellectual history, and it becomes very popular. And there's another book 20 years later that does a, a similar kind of thing. It's it, it's um, um, serialised in various periodicals, and it also serves a purpose, because in the 20th century, fundamentalism emerges. Interestingly, they're not particularly bothered about evolution at first, but for various social reasons, they pick up evolution as the enemy. And so, according to the sociological evidence of what's going on in America with regards to fundamentalism and evolution, this narrative of hostility and warfare that Draper developed at the end of the 19th century seems to make sense. And so it sticks, and it's with us today. And one of the quotes that really stuck with me um, in your book was, millions upon millions of Protestants reject Darwinism. So you've just talked about the Protestant anxiety about Catholicism and kind of trying to paint the Catholic Church historically as um, an institution which suffocated scientific endeavour. Can you talk a bit about that? So by 1900, so a generation, two generations really after Darwin published his theory, the broad consensus of established Protestant opinion in UK and America is more or less happy with evolution, doesn't have a big deal. Popular opinion is always a bit bit more wary. But in the early years of the 20th century, the way in which Darwinism is hijacked to justify the eugenics movement and the way in which the shock of the First World War and the idea that might is right, which seems to be a kind of a social version of survival of the fittest, survival of the strongest, survival of the mightiest, worries people. And it's only from about midway through the 1910s or so that Protestants, particularly poorer Protestants in the southern United States, 
begin to see, ah, okay, what that what's at the heart of the eugenics movement that PS wants to sterilise a lot of people like us because we're poor and illiterate and so on and so forth. And, and, and at the heart of the kind of the international chaos at the moment is this doctrine that, you know, actually what drives history is not justice, it's power. So Darwin is at fault here. And so when you get to the famous Scopes monkey trial in 1925, it's William Jennings Bryan, who is the leading fundamentalist of the day, who tries to argue against evolution and he's roundly humiliated but he'd been a three-time presidential candidate for the populist party the original populist party the people's party in the 1890s he saw himself as a defender of the people and of particular people who would be ignored or, or worse if evolution in the form of eugenics or whatever else was to be dominant and interesting the scope trial is fought over this book a civic biology which is pretty much straight down the line orthodox biology, except for the fact that it does veer into kind of eugenic moments at, at time. So what's going on there is a Protestant reaction to the science, and there's absolutely no denying that, but it's the science that's wearing a pretty kind of thick social and political overcoat, if you see what I mean. And it's that particular incarnation of evolution that really gets the anti-evolution movement going amongst the Protestants. That's so interesting. I had no, I had no idea about that. Fascinating, um, and I think that takes us perfectly to our time machine because we are going to be talking about the origin of the species and its publication and Charles Darwin. So um, I'm going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests, which is: If you could travel back to a year in history, which year would it be? Well, it's 1860. I'm cheating a bit. I'm going a few months earlier to the very end of 1859 and the, and, and the 12 months from then and particularly culminating in a, in a raucous public meeting in Oxford in June 1860. Before we go to the first scene, just briefly give us a bit of background. So we're in England and Queen Victoria is firmly on the throne. Yes. Just give us a, a brief sort of... Um, scene setting yeah so we're towards the end of the first generation of victoria's reign she's been on the throne for 23 years um, and britain is confident it's absolutely leading the world in terms of the industrial revolution it has gone through a very very turbulent post-napoleonic period from 1815 right the way through actually to 1848 there was a time of enormous economic instability political instability and um, what was known as the, 18th, the hungry 40s, the hungry 1840s, where um, you know, there was genuine, significant social unrest in the Chartist movement. Many European countries descend into revolution in 1848. There's a huge um, monster Chartist movement in Kennington, in London in 1848. And people genuinely think that the government is going to be overthrown. It's a kind of spectre that haunts the established mind and it particularly, for various reasons, haunts Charles Darwin's mind for, for reasons we'll, we'll, we'll talk about. And it doesn't happen. In the 1850s, economic circumstances pick up. Britain's authority continues to spread across the world and people feel richer and a bit more secure. So there are always anxieties, there are anxieties in every single age. But by the time you get to 1860 or so, Britain is in a pretty comparatively comfortable position both internally and around the rest of the world. Okay, so let's go to your first scene, which is, I think, Charles Darwin's 
sitting room mm. in in London. In Down, in Down House in Kent. So he 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 used to live in London, um, and then he moved. Um, probably 1842 I think it was with his new wife Emma to an old rectory suitably enough an old rectory in in Down in Kent and Darwin who is a particular intellectual hero of mine has been working on a book for a very long time he comes back from the Beagle his journey around the world on a um, surveying ship effectively in which he gathers lots and lots and lots of evidence and becomes convinced that the species that species aren't fixed and there are some amazing notebooks he writes at the end of the 1830s, beginning to ponder. Doesn't look as if special creation, which was the orthodox idea at the time, the idea that God had made every single species as it currently is and they never change, doesn't look as if that's right. Now, why is it such a big idea? It's because transmutation, as it was known at the time, is not just a scientific idea. In fact, it's not even a scientific idea at the time. It's more of a social and political idea. Because if you think about it, if species can change, why not humans? And if humans, why not classes? If you want an ordered, fixed, controlled, high Victorian social sort of um, situation in which the rich man in his castle, the poor man in his gate, as the famous Victorian hymn has it, the idea of transmutation, that things that actually the poor man might become the rich man or, or the rich man might become the poor man or we might all be related to other primates becomes very very threatening darwin develops this idea in the late 1830s doesn't publish it it's just too risky and sets about accumulating a huge amount of evidence he's got a terrific network of contact across the world many of the missionaries incidentally always writing to them asking what about this what about that masses the huge amount of evidence and then to his horror in 1858 he gets a letter from a minor naturalist Alfred Russell Wallace, who's in the Malay archipelago, who's come up with exactly the same idea as Darwin had developed over the last 20 years or so. Sends him a paper, says, what do you think of this? Darwin's horrified and he writes to the only two friends who know about this really earth-shattering idea and says, all my originality is going to be out the window. And they persuade him to jointly publish one paper, his paper, and Alfred Russell Wallace's paper at the Linnaean Society in 1858, and then quickly to get his book into print. Darwin's book had been about a thousand pages before, and it was enormous. He basically publishes a massively truncated version of it, The Origin of Species, in November 1859. And he sends out, or the publisher sends out a few advanced copies. And one of them goes to Charles Kingsley, who was um, a vicar in Hampshire. Um, he was also a professor of history. And just before the official publication date, Kingsley writes to Darwin and he says to him, uh, you're the naturalist of whom all naturalists I wish to know and learn from. All I have seen of your book awes me. And he is enormously impressed with what he says, with what he reads. And in particular, he says, I have gradually learned to see that it is just as noble a conception of deity to believe that he created primal forms capable of self-development into all forms needful at the time, as to believe that he has required a fresh act of intervention every single time. In other words, what Kingsley is saying is your idea of evolution is actually a better fit with my vision of God than the kind of vision I was brought up with 
individual special creation. I think that's so striking, having this harmonious reception of evolution even before the book is published. It's amazing. And this is Charles Kingsley who wrote The Water Babies. And... It is. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So he's a minor figure, relatively minor figure. I think he become, becomes more, more significant in Victorian Britain. Hello there. It's time for a word about our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours. As the days get longer and you start to think about plans for the year ahead, it's a great time to pick up one of their catalogues to see what 2023 might hold for you. In March, for instance, they have a tour called Venice, the triumph of light and colour, led by the art historian Tom Abbott, which sweeps through the palazzi, galleries and churches of the great city of Canals. In June, you could head off to the untamed landscape of classical Greece with the archaeological historian Andrew Wilson. There you could explore Byzantine churches, sanctuaries and monasteries. Or how about a trip to investigate the history of the Teutonic Knights at Malbork in Poland? That tour sets off at the end of August. I mentioned just three of Ace's cultural tours just now, but there are about a hundred or so on offer right now in all sorts of places and on all sorts of subjects. Why not begin your tour by having a look for yourself by visiting www.aceculturaltours.co.uk or by giving their friendly team a call on 01223 841 055. So now let's go on to your second scene, please. So this is the publication of a book that most people won't have heard of today. It's called Essays and Reviews, and it was published in March 1860. It's a series of theological essays. We weirdly associate the big crisis of Victorian faith with Darwin and Origin Species. Not a bit of it. This book of seven essays by, I think, six clerics and one layperson um, was far more shocking the Victorian mind because what it did was introduce to Victorian gentlemen what was called at the time German higher criticism and this is developed in Germany in the 1840s and 1850s and this was criticism of the Bible treating the Bible like it was an ordinary classical text still with huge respect but so analyzing it criticism. basically literary and historical <laughs> criticism Okay. So you understand the texts in the context of their time. You understand the text in the context of their literary genre. It's absolutely basic stuff for us today. But in Victorian Britain, it's an enormous shock. And it's an enormous shock because Victorian Britain has, for 200 years, been self-consciously Protestant. And that means founding itself on sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. And in the last generation or so, Catholicism, which of course had long been the enemy... Protestant Britain, it's creeping back in. The Catholic hierarchy is re-established in 1850. The Emancipation Act has been signed in 1829. And so Protestant Britain is a bit insecure. And so when you have these clerics coming along saying, actually, the foundation of our world, well, we're going to critique it. Now, they're not atheists at all. In fact, they're, they're Christian believers, all of them. But the very act of just challenging the foundations, challenging the ultimate authority of a society sends Victorian Britain crazy. And this is a hugely, hugely controversial book. 
And how did that um, manifest itself? Were, were, were there big public debates? Were, were, was there, were there any sort of moments that you can pinpoint? Yeah, I mean, ex- excoriating reviews, first of all. Lots of people writing to ecclesiastical authorities saying, you've basically got to defrock these people. One of the authors was, bought, was brought before the Vice-Chancellor's Court for teaching contrary to the doctrines of the Church of England. I don't think any of them were formally kind of found guilty, as it were, but it was a very, very challenging time. And it was a mark of the comparative intellectual freedom of that period of interwoy Britain that they didn't end up, you know, out of a job. But it was certainly more than a few negative reviews. A lot of them came under pressure, public pressure, that they shouldn't really be ordained ministers if they believe this dreadful German higher criticism. Was there any comeback for the publishing company? Yeah, they loved it. I mean, sold 22,000 copies. (laughs) (laughs) But they didn't get any kind of, there was no legal... No, because again, for a very long time, Britain had been much freer in terms of publishing. In fact, I think since the early 18th century, um, licensing laws had been such that it was very, very difficult to prosecute publishers. I mean, Again, this was, this, was, this was free Protestant Britons in, in, in the 18th century. We prided ourselves over against a much more kind of inquisitorial culture of, of continental Europe. So no, there, was no, there was no comeback like that. And of course, you know, ironically, given how much better we know Origin of Species today, this book outsold it by miles. But isn't it ironic how so often in history it's um, religion... The, the, the sort of controversial things, the things that shake religion, come from within religion itself rather than a, a, external. Absolutely it is. It seems to me that happens again and again and again in, in all religion. I mean, you look at Islam, you know, right from the beginning, they were, they'd split into these two factions which still um, define yes. the, the that, religion today. That's right. And, and actually that, that, that applies to all kind of pick up the title of the book, all kind of different magisteria. So it's sometimes said that, you know, religion has played, posed a significant challenge and a threat to science. Maybe, I don't particularly think so, but that's nothing compared to the threat that science has posed to science. Uh, and, and, And that's the strength of science. It's the fact that it is prepared to pose awkward questions, nagging questions of itself. And actually, religion at its best does that. These are periods of reflection and reformation that encourage the reassessment of core doctrines. That's happening all the time. But I suppose with religion, it so often ends up with the most appalling violence and death. That's the difference, isn't it? In in science, you don't end up with the 30 years war. Um, No, you you don't. You haven't so far, anyway. You you don't, but and and that's the critical thing that they are. They both might both be magisteria, but socially they're very different kinds of magisteria. So when you're talking about religion, you're talking about the profound and deep identity of millions of people. Challenging that provokes a huge reaction. Now, actually, we delude ourselves to think that science has always been a great deal more polite. Scientific disputes have been phenomenally acrimonious. I treasure the line that Newton and Leibniz had a vicious argument about who developed calculus in the early 17th century. And in the preface, I forget exactly what, of one of Newton's later books, 
one of his disciples memorably described Leibniz as a miserable reptile. <laughs> I think that's a great phrase, a miserable reptile. This is passion. This is real fury and anger. But the difference is it's between a dozen people who actually understand what's going on. Um, and interestingly, you know, when you get moments such as you do in 20th century Soviet Russia, where science is invested with a huge ideological, quasi-religious significance, then it can actually get bloody. So there are disagreements within each magisteria. It's just that they play out in some very different ways, usually. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. Well, I think we should move on to scene three now, which is quite a big one. We're, we're, go we're going to Oxford, I believe, to a debating hall, a particular debating hall. A library. In fact, the only room in Oxford big enough to accommodate the 800 or so people who want to witness what's going to go on. OK, can you take us there? Which library is it? Well, it's the University Library um, and it's recently been built. It's just up the, up the Keeble Road and it's a, in theory, it's a lecture by John Draper, whom we've already encountered. Um, I think it's a lecture on the intellectual development of Europe um, and it's a lecture which has a few respondents but everybody knows that what's really going on here is a debate about the origin species. It's a, it's a meeting, I think it's the last day of the British Association for the Advancement of Science, which is one of these bodies that meets, I think, at least yearly, maybe more than every year, in which the latest science is thrashed out in a public arena. And the publicness is very important because science, having been up until 1820 or 30 or so, a very contained limited professional affair because of pr cheap print is now becoming a public affair so the public are getting genuinely interested in this so that's why it's so packed the lecture itself was actually a little bit boring John Draper isn't a great lecturer it's quite a hot afternoon it's the end of June people are getting a bit torpid can I just ask so who what kind of people would have been in the audience eminent Victorians to coin okay. phrase, this is Oxford. Um, it's not just it's not just a clerical meeting. It's academics, but it's more than academics as well. It's the reading public, if I can put it that way. Okay, okay. But on the platform next to Draper, two gentlemen, Thomas Henry Huxley, and Bishop Samuel Wilberforce, and everybody in the audience knows that what they'll be really waiting for is a clash between these two, both pugilistic, intelligent, eminent men men of science in a sense, although that's a bit contestable in one of those instances, about the theory of evolution and how true it is, because it's very early days in the general public. It's the famous because, allegedly, the Bishop of Oxford says to Huxley at one point, would you prefer to be descended from uh, an ape on your grandmother's side or your grandfather's side? And... Huxley allegedly whispers to the person next to him, the Lord hath delivered him into mine hands and says something like, I'd rather be descended from an ape than from a bishop. But nobody quite knew what he said. There's actually, for all its subsequent fame, the event was only really came into public notice a generation or so later. And we can only piece together, or we could only piece together what happened from a number of gossipy letters and a few very truncated reports in the press. And then a scholar a few years ago picked up a remarkably full account of it from the 
Oxford Chronicle and Bucks and Barks Gazette, I think it's called, which is a, not by no means complete, but a, a much larger transcript of the event. So we finally get to find out who said what and what they were actually fighting about. And can you tell us a bit more about the two protagonists? Yeah, so Bishop Samuel Wilberforce is, the, I think, the third son of the abolitionist William Wilberforce. Um, he's exceptionally intelligent. He's a brilliant orator. And he's establishment through and through, as you'd expect from that kind of lineage. So he is, I think, chaplain to Prince Albert. He has been, um, I think, Dean of Westminster. And he is currently Bishop of Oxford. He has the moniker Soapy Sam Wilberforce. In theory, because he spent an awful lot of time vacillating over the appointments of the Bishop of Herefordshire a few years back. But actually, because he had this habit when he was standing, this doesn't work particularly on the podcast, of kind of holding his hands together like that, almost as if he's washing them. And he spoke like this. Um, and also because he was a bit of a slippery bugger, to be honest with you. <laughs> so he's, he's eminent. He's also, and this is critically important, iconic of a form of Victorian male clerical natural philosophy. In other words, who science was governed by before it became professionalised. It was people in the first half of the century would look to people like Soapy Sam Wilberforce for their guidance about science. Thomas Henry Huxley is most popular known as Darwin's bulldog, although interestingly I discovered when writing the book that he was never known as Darwin's bulldog during his lifetime. It was a, it was a phrase that subsequently came applied, applied to him and he considered himself always to be much more a defender of Darwin than, than, than an aggressor. He's younger. He's born in 1825, I think it is. So he's about 35 years at this time. Totally different social national. Poor, had to leave school at 10, I think. Was an autodidact. Went as a ship surgeon for many, many years, but a kind of a natural philosopher on board. Worked on invertebrates and then vertebrates. Brilliant anatomist, very fine mind. And by the time he gets back, um, to Britain in the 18, late 1840s. He becomes professor of the Royal Society of Mines, I think it is. He's the one who comes up with the idea that birds are descended from dinosaurs. He is a very fine scientist and he is not cowed by the establishment. In fact, he dislikes the establishment because he has had to work so hard to get to where he is. And there's a telling little story which is relevant to the event. At one point, he is required to write a letter to Richard Owen, who is perhaps the most eminent anatomist in Victorian Britain, asking for his support for a job he was going for. Doesn't get a reply from Owen and then spies him in the street in London. And he says at one point, I was going to walk past him, but he stopped me and said something like, I have received your request. I shall grant it. And Huxley subsequently said, I had to stop myself from knocking him into the gutter. And it's a very symbolic account because although Owen isn't there during this debate, nor is Darwin, both of them are just hovering in the background. So it's a kind of battle between the new, professionalised, hardworking, worthy scientist and the establishment, the sort of old guard, who, who was also a bishop. I mean, let's not forget this. And, and this was something I found astonishing that you said that after this event, the, the clergyman no longer presided over the British Association for the Advancement of Science. 
That's so, right. I mean, it's not because of the event, as it were. I wouldn't want to say this direct causality there that this happened and then there were no more bishops because the, 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 there were. But this, this, this event was indicative, if you like. This was the, the kind of dividing point beforehand up until I mean, more so in the 1830s, less than the 1840s and 1850s. It's going downhill. But this is the moment where you can almost see the break because the word scientist is only coined in 1834. It's a yeah. very, very new <laughs> concept and it takes a while for the old guard to relinquish this position of intellectual authority. But by the late 1850s, relinquishing it, they are. And you can see this event as almost symbolic of that relinquishing. Astonishing that... But I suppose clergymen were... I mean, I was talking about this in the a podcast I recorded earlier in the week about how many of these um, clergymen in the 19th century were, were great naturalists and antiquaries and gathered all sorts of local information and really played uh, you know, a very, very important role in that. Uh, you really can't over-exaggerate that. If you were to go to uh, look for scientific work done in the early 19th century, the place you'd probably find it is uh, a rectory, an Anglican rectory. Mm. And actually, it's even more important than that. So there's a, I, I quote in the book, there's a brilliant vignette in um, Gulliver's Travels where Jonathan Swift basically takes the piss out of the Royal Society. And you forget that, you know, experiments to measure the weight of air yeah. was transparently absurd in 1700, let alone experiments where they, you, know, you physically dismember a dog when it's alive. I mean, really, really horrid stuff. And people say, well, what is the point of this? There is no, there's no return on this. And the reason why science, this new science, managed to maintain any kind of social momentum was because it was deemed to be almost a form of worship. Boyle, the famous chemist, Robert Boyle, said that science is the kind of activity you do in heaven because it's, the, it's, it's a contemplation of God's creation. And so science owes an awful lot to almost like the protective environment that theology built for it in Britain in the well, 18th century. And also the ability to ask any question and to, to ask the stupid questions as well as the interesting ones. And science still does that. I mean, you still occasionally read, you know, in or hear on the news that they've done a scientific study and they've discovered that, you know, and you think, what? Someone's been... Yeah. <laughs> you know, but that's what science, it's got to be completely universal, hasn't it? We've got to be able to study everything. That's, that's part of its value. You, you, absolutely. And it's, a, it's, it's an inherently, or it should be, an inherently destabilising activity because you're always picking at why. Why is that happening? Why mm. is that happening? And most cultures throughout history don't like that. Um, so if it has some religious imprimatur on it, it's protected. And that was so important to the birth of science in the Western Europe. Yeah, I wanted to say that earlier when you were talking about um, Darwin and, you know, he developed these ideas over those decades. And but it was a time of great political instability. And obviously that would have really played into whether or not, because what he was basically doing was taking a very stable idea that man, you know, human beings are privileged above all other things in creation. And he, he was destabilizing everything just by changing that idea. But in addition to that, it, it is a very destabilising idea that, you know, we can all move between different species. And that's the same with Copernicus. His idea that the, the you, you know, the, the I'm going to get it the wrong way around, that the, the, the earth goes around the sun was massively destabilising for everybody. Just the, the idea that we're actually moving through space at however many miles an hour. So, so it was... Uh, but without going down too much of a rabbit hole, actually, the, 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 the heliocentrism 
wasn't quite as challenging as people think. I mean, it certainly did upset and challenge people, but actually people imagine, well, put it this way, that um, people, Freud's idea was that by moving the earth from the centre, you demoted humans. But actually in the medieval world, the centre was the sublunary world, the Aristotelian sublunary world underneath the moon and it was an an arena of decay and filth whereas above the heavens superlunary was the arena of perfection and eternity and beauty and music of the spheres so actually by locating the earth away from sublunary sphere which no longer became tenable into the heavens it was almost more of a promotion than a demotion. But it was still just the idea, I mean, lots of people wrote at the time, you know, how can it possibly be? How can we be moving? We, we would feel that we were moving and we can't. And that, I think that the idea of motion, the motion of the planet was harder for people to... It, it um, was. And, and actually, you know, one of the reasons why heliocentrism takes such a very long time to percolate into a wider imagination is because there are serious scientific objections to it mm, at the yeah. time rather than just religious ones the, the classic one is called the stellar parallax if we're moving around yeah. the sun you should see some difference in measurements of the stars now you, you can only see that if you have very 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 sensitive instruments people couldn't see that at the time so i thought well there is there is a massive scientific problem with this theory. It's another example of how actually some of the greatest challenges to science haven't come from religion or scripture. They come from other bits of science. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Well, I think, and now I'm going to ask you the, the final question, which is if you could have um, picked something up from one of these three places that we visited today and brought it back with you to the present and kept it, um, what would it be? So I would go into Darwin's study at Down and I would rifle through his drawers and pick up one of the notebooks that he had written after he'd come back from the Beagle journey to 1837, 38, 39. I'm tempted to go for a first edition of The Origin of the Species. That would be lovely. But these notebooks are even better. These are the ones that contain you know, the famous Tree of Life they contain his almost feverish jottings as he's reading some stuff and thinking about other stuff and slowly the penny drops. And at times he almost, having read them online, he almost sounds like an Old Testament prophet in terms of his judgment made against mankind. Uh, it, it, it's fascinating. It's kind of raw thought. And it's at a time when Darwin himself is still a Christian believer. He only loses his Christian faith a bit later on and he's wrestling with metaphysics. He doesn't do that in print because he's not a speculative thinker. He's an empirical thinker. He just draws on evidence. In his notebooks, he lets his mind run wild. And I think that would be a lovely memento to have. Yeah, that's a great choice. He didn't have to lose his faith, though, did he? That wasn't connect. I don't know. Do, do you think it was connected? It's, it's a 50-50 thing. So the thing that really destroyed him was being at the bedside of his daughter, Annie, when she died in 1851, he was there every moment. She, he, she was undergoing um, water therapy um, at Dr. Dr. Gully's clinic. And she died. And you, know, you read his almost hourly letters back to Emma in Down. And they are absolutely heartbreaking. His faith is pretty thin by that time anyway. And this pushes it over the edge he, he's never an atheist he, he he absolutely denies the fact that 
evolution is contrary to belief in God. And he is quite clear that he isn't a non-believer in God, but he's not a Christian after that point. Yeah, I read that bit in your book. It's heart, completely heartbreaking. And especially when you read it in the context of the little table that he made before he got married, whether he, when he was deciding whether or not he should get married. And I thought that was very, very touching. Yes, um, the, table is, the table is terrific. Marry or not marry. One of his arguments is well, better than the dog anyhow. So. Yeah. <laughs> not the most romantic of thoughts. But, no, but he obviously had no means of imagining what he the kind of love he was going to feel for his children before he and and indeed emma i mean emma's a fascinating character she's very very bright she's a brilliant pianist she's thoughtful she's a profound christian believer and she says to him at one point and it's it's a very pertinent statement she writes him a letter saying might not your habits of only i'm paraphrasing here believing something if you've got total proof for it it works for science, but for other areas of life, does it really work? And, and, and she's kind of saying to him, you know, if you're expecting the same standards of evidential proof for metaphysical or philosophical or religious beliefs, you're always going to be disappointed. Yeah. So she really knew the way his mind worked. Do you think he shared his ideas with her about the he, evolution before... I mean, he definitely did about about evolution. There's a, there's a, a fascinating, again, beautiful note that he he's he's feeling doubts after coming back from the Beagle, eighteen thirty eight, thirty nine, when he's courting Emma, and he, he's a very honest man. And in fact, she recognises his honesty, and so he confesses to her that I got honest, as she calls him, honest and conscientious doubts. And she writes back and says, you know, my reason tells me that honest and conscientious doubts are not a sin. I would just encourage you to keep on thinking. So they definitely did communicate. Of course, we don't have most of their communication now because they simply they lived together for 40 years or so. Mm, yeah. It was only those things that were occasionally a bit too painful and they had to kind of pass each other notes that we have any record now. But they had a remarkably intimate, supportive and rather beautiful marriage. Well, that is what one of the wonderful things about your, your really extremely impressive book is how you take this really long view of this huge subject but then inject it with these really personal specific stories um and uh, yeah it's 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 a really wonderful book thank you so thank much you. for talking to me today it's been a great pleasure i've really enjoyed it thank you that was me violet moller speaking to nicholas spencer last week about his riveting new book magisteria the entangled histories of science and religion which has just been published for more information and our full archive of previous episodes, please visit tttpodcast.com. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Goodbye.